Welcome, listeners, one and all. Welcome to Regency Rumours, the podcast where a British-American couple recap and discuss Bridgerton, the Regency Netflix show. I'm Jordan. And I'm Kayla. We're here at episode four, part two, an affair of honor. Why have you got like a weird, like, seductory voice on? I don't. You're just annoying me. So you decided to put a seduction voice on? It wasn't a seduction. That hello, is flattering listeners. that you think it's seductive. It was more like a hello, listeners. It, no, it didn't sound like that at all. Just before we started recording, he decided to sing those dumb sea shanties whoa, that's whoa, been going whoa, you're around skipping on the a whole inter- bit. Anyways, we're here at episode four, part two, for an affair of honor. We decided to separate these episodes because there's just so much to talk about with the new season coming up and period drama stuff to talk about. So we decided to finish up this episode with The Duel, which is one of the most captivating parts in this series. So we're going to talk a a little bit about uh, dueling today. And um, now I'd like to get back to shaming you for your new obsession with sea shanties so join us it isn't just me it's a huge trend and i have gotten a little bit obsessed there once was a ship that put to sea and the name of the ship was the belly of tea i'm not even with you right now i'm being forced to listen to this help hey it's a brilliant song it's i don't care no one came here for that they came here for bridgerton Mm mm-hmm well, people should go listen to it. Nathan Evans. Well, I'm No, I'm done. Okay, so... Go listen. So I just want to get back to what we were kind of talking about in part one of this episode, which is that Bridgerton is now the most watched show on Netflix and the most watched original show of Netflix. Netflix is right? Yeah. I mean, th- those two things, th- if it's the most watched show, then of course it's going to be the most watched original show too. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> but I, no, I totally get what you mean though, because um, they they specifically mentioned The Witcher as yeah. it beating out The Witcher, right? Yeah. And I think for someone like me, it's just kind of this like validation that the things that I've been into since I was younger, like... It, it is and can be for anyone. And I just kind of grew up remembering that people were into Harry Potter growing up. They were into comics and superheroes and that sort of thing. And I really felt in some ways that I was excluded from like mainstream interests growing up. And not to say that, that, Jane Austen wasn't wildly popular because she was, and loads of people know about her, obviously. But it just kind of felt like that these kind of novels, Regency novels, uh, these kind of historical romances, they were for women. They were fluff pieces that only women would read on the beach and that they weren't kind of considered anything serious. And yes, in a lot of ways, like Bridgerton isn't meant to be taken very seriously like it's it's a very colorful fairy tale like show but at the same time you have to look at these numbers and people that are watching this and 
for someone like me, I'm like, well, clearly this can be mainstream. And Julia, Julia Quinn, the, the author of the Bridgerton series, she kind of talks about that. She wrote these books 20 years ago. It's not like, you know, they came out just a few years ago. She wrote them 20 years ago, never, ever expecting that they would turn into a series because no one took this genre seriously. And it was kind of one of those things that women would read in, in secret or that you just would never think would be on the screen because they were these kind of romances with, you know, buff guys and long hair on the cover, that sort of thing. And well, but okay, but if people are okay having Fifty Shades of Grey on the train and on the buses, but that's a recent thing, I think. That's yeah, a hundred percent. That's a new thing. But now people are kind of the way that we as a society, well, Western society, obviously focus on on certain media it has changed since we were kids i mean mm. in the past 20 years since these books were written it's changed massively yeah. and part of that is i think this kind of we get to choose now yeah netflix streaming and all of that kind yeah. of thing and so now when you've got a show like this you don't have big executives in an office somewhere making decisions for you yeah now a bunch of people can go no we really like that let's go watch it we'll, well talk about it and they can say well this is popular and that's kind of what happened with shonda rhyme she was like well no i like this idea we're gonna run with it and clearly it's done really well for her and for netflix so for someone like me i i just remember growing up and um when i was like 15 or 16 the the 2005 pride and prejudice came out and i remember that for me, that was like a huge, massive deal. That was that was my like Lord of the Rings coming out, Harry Potter, the whole that was my thing. And so when it came out, I remember asking like a guy friend to go to the movie with me. And he was like, no, <laughs> he was like, that's isn't that a girl's movie is kind of what he told me at the time. And I was so embarrassed because I was like, oh, well, Jane Austen's a big deal. But at the time, it really felt like Jane Austen was something that that only women watched and that, you know, not everybody would go to a film like that. So I think what's really interesting here is that there are a lot of parallels between that story and your experience with Jane Austen films and a lot of people's experience with D&D &D and other like geeky, nerdy stuff in the 80s, early 90s. So obviously we, we were born in the early 90s. We're coming up on 30 yay yay <laughs> um but you know when i when i was a kid and i was into all of this like the fantasy and sci-fi stuff you originally kind of you had to hide that because otherwise you get beaten up for it um i doubt you had anybody necessarily wanting to <laughs> beat you up for liking no, Jane Austen. <laughs> nothing like that but it was just it was just one of those things where i felt very embarrassed to talk about that i was into it. i wasn't embarrassed like in my own friend circle because a lot of my friends liked it but in terms of like in terms of like talking to guys or in a bigger friend group I wouldn't necessarily like admit that that was the top thing that I was into oh yeah so yeah. I mean the same thing for me and even today I still do it where if someone at work says oh what are your hobbies I don't immediately jump to Star Trek Star Wars and all of the things that I actually really enjoy I think that's so sad, though. And I think I think watching something like Bridgerton, it proves that like 
what you're into is what you're into and you should be proud of it and you should go like this is I don't care how nerdy this is this is what I'm into and I think you know I'm not lost on the fact that probably a large amount of Bridgerton's draw is that there is all these steamy sex scenes so I'm not like negating that fact but at the same time there's loads of places where you can find that stuff on the internet so I have to believe that the storyline is also pushing why people are watching this show and why people are really enjoying it and so anyways it's just to say that for someone like me who's grown up almost obsessing about the Regency period. I have a blog on the matter. I'm writing a book uh, kind of set in the Regency period. And I've read loads of Regency era stuff. It just feels like really happy and validation that we can all enjoy something like this. Nobody needs to be shamed for it. And it doesn't have to be just a woman's thing that, you know, she goes and she reads in private. So I'm just, I'm proud and I'm excited. I think so that, that uh first of all that's really great i'm really happy that you know you can feel that way um and many other people as well and i think this kind of it extends a little bit further than just this this genre mm. i i'd like to think that the world as a whole is getting a little bit more mature in how we handle people's um favorite shows or just you know the things that they like for entertainment um you no longer you know, hundreds of years ago, if you didn't read, you know, the, the canon, basically what we consider the canon of literature now, you'd be kind of ridiculed for it. And so you, you hit it. And then all the way up until 30 years ago, the, basically the same kind of thing. Whereas now, you know, D&D &D is kind of, it's got a massive revival right now because it's massively popular from um, Stranger Things and stuff. You know, people just kind of got back into it. And um, that's Dungeons and Dragons, if you aren't aware so these kinds of things are becoming more mainstream because people are realizing that it's not actually it's not shameful to enjoy playing video games and to enjoy these like fantasy worlds and well, things. like things like comic cons and um reenactments I, I remember when i was younger like it was kind of the homeschool kids that did things like reenactments and now you see on instagram there's loads of of women and men who are showing videos of getting dressed in Victorian garb and how they make um, historical costumes. And there's almost like famous YouTubers now that do it. And, you know, I, I just grew up with that not being a mainstream thing. And now loads of people um, have these Instagram and YouTube accounts that just show these beautiful costumes and stuff. And it's just something they do for fun. Um, or, you know, people are going to events where, where they will go to Regency dances um, and and balls all over the world and people are meeting up and dressing up at the like Jane Austen festival, that sort of thing. And it's that same sort of thing that happens at like comic cons where people will will dress up like the characters that they really enjoy. And it's it's just nice that it's more mainstream now and people don't need to be shamed for that. It's it's fun and they enjoy it. And it's kind of just an escapism that they can go to and enjoy, you know, um, living in the medieval period or living yeah. in the Regency period, it's it's just meant to be fun. Yeah, and so. you can you can see as well from the way that like the big corporations spend money. So Disney, for example, owning Star Wars now, and the um, attractions, the the places that they've built at Disney World, where it basically is you walk into Star Wars, and obviously originally it was all Disney and 
I've never actually been that many times. Like I've, I don't really know what's there in terms of Disney stuff. <laughs> so I'm not sure what to compare it to, but the Star Wars stuff, it's like, it's no longer just a pipe dream for people to kind of really like that kind of thing. They can go and experience it and not have to feel ashamed about it. So yeah, basically just saying the exact same thing as you. One day I'm advocating for a Regency world like there is um, these theme parks for Star Wars or Harry Potter. And one day we'll, one day we'll have one, guys. <laughs> cool. You never know. So anyways, I just want to say that I saw this article, which I think is hilarious. There are obviously a ton of stately homes in the UK, but at the same time, I think there are only so many that are like acceptable for filming in. Um, sometimes they film for months at a time and the stately homes won't want a, a film crew there. And there's all sorts of like regulations and stuff that goes on. Well, people have been filming some of the locations from Bridgerton on like YouTube and TikTok and showing you where they are. Um, people who live nearby to to like the bridgerton's house and stuff well apparently the crown and bridgerton are fighting over the same houses for filming filming locations namely the bridgerton's house uh, which is apparently also going to be in the new season of the crown so it's it's just like such a first world problem to have right now during this pandemic but i just thought that that was really funny um apparently bridgerton doesn't want to have to deal with having to share the same country house so shondaland has applied for a planning permission to build a big set in birkenshire to essentially just birkenshire is that is that how you say it you i mean you never say shire birkenshire we don't live anywhere it near could, there, so that's another it, one of those that I just don't know because I feel like most of my education is through what you end up saying to me, and so we've never had a reason for you to say that word for me to know how it sounds. I know, but I'm not sure. It could be Barkinshire. Yeah. Um, we've mentioned Shondaland a couple of times. Can you just clarify what that is, just in case anybody isn't aware? As far as I know, Shondaland is it's her production company. Yeah. So, like, How to Get Away with Murder, Grey's Anatomy... And now Bridgerton. So it's it's her production company that makes her shows. But anyways, so she's the, the production company has applied for a planning permission to build this big set to essentially just construct replicas of the Bridgerton and Featherington houses, which seems like a massive undertaking to me to to reconstruct kind of structures based on these houses. So talks are also that they want to rent um, other land nearby for as long as five years, which signals that they're planning on the show being around for a long time, um, which is a cool little tidbit there. I don't know why I feel this way, but Shondaland being like, eh, this is a problem. I don't have to share these houses with the crown. We'll just build our own. It feels so American to me. Like, it feels as if this is one of those subtle ways that you can tell that, that this is an American show. Because Shonda Rhimes has not come to play and she's got this Netflix money now. So she's just like, I'll just build my own stately home. Why not? <laughs> so I think that's funny. Yeah, I mean, definitely. It is so American. It's. I wonder if they'll get the permission or do we know already if they do? They're still working on it. That that should be interesting. I mean, I do know some of the codes here and stuff. It's It can be strict. So it'll be interesting to see if they actually get it. But if they can build replicas, I'm sure people will want to like sneak a peek and see what it looks like if they yeah, do that. Yeah, I mean, but think about, so uh, Warner Brothers Studio where they have a lot of the Harry Potter sets and stuff. Yeah. 
it, I guess it wasn't that difficult for them. So if it, if they do the same thing here, if they just build a massive warehouse and put it inside, I'm sure it'll be... Yeah, that, that could be cool because even like in Belfast where they did a lot of the Game of Thrones stuff, you know, mm. now people can go and visit. Or when I went like a year, what was it, a year ago? Two um, years, I think. Yeah, so they, they had a lot of the set there that you could kind of go and see. So it could be similar um, after they finish wrapping up filming maybe people want to go and go and see the set which i think would be really fun we should yeah. go and do that if that if that happens yeah. so anyways but it must be nice to have enough money to do what you want like that in in the sense yeah. of like do we oh are we going to get this stately home doesn't matter let's just build one i think that's great in terms of period dramas because there's all sorts of like corners they end up cutting a lot of times because they don't have the money and that happens a lot to period dramas um because they're not normally is popular so the fact that that she's been able to do exactly what she needs to do i love it i i mean that's the reason I'll, I'll not go too far off onto a tangent but one of the things that people sometimes complain about with period dramas is that regency dresses are reused over and over so you can identify a dress on one actress and and it be used two years later five years later and it's the same dress like five different times five different movies and and so it's like you know, it's just kind of recognizable. Well, in this show, I mean, hundreds of dresses were made, all originals. And that's, I think, a huge appeal to this show that you see these colorful dresses and they're kind of um, really memorable to me because it's like, you know, you're, you're not seeing some reused dress. You're seeing all custom-made dresses for these actresses. So I really like that. And the only way that they'd be able to do that is if they, they got the money they needed. I mean that's funny because I I barely notice. It's fine. It's fine. I don't think I'm supposed to, am I? I mean maybe if you like a dress that you think is pretty. There's dresses I think are pretty. I, uh, there, was there one dress you thought that's a pretty dress? The 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 feather one that Lady oh Featherington had. <laughs> <laughs> On to the recap. So this is part two of episode four. So if you haven't listened to the first part, definitely go back and listen to part one of uh, episode four. So if you want to talk about Bridgerton or you've got a question or a comment about the podcast, join our Facebook group, www.facebook.com slash groups slash Regency Rumors or email us at a Regency Girl at gmail.com. Now on to the recap. Rumor with a U. Let it no. Back at the Bridgertons, Anthony tells Daphne that he is not mad at her. Simon took advantage of her, and it is not her fault at all, even though she's trying to reason with him that she also wanted it. Uh, she says to him, you think just because I'm a woman, I'm incapable of making my own choices. Her words seem to have fallen on deaf ears. Daphne can tell that it's not really about her, but about his pride. There's nothing she can say to convince him not to duel in the morning. He tells her this is the way things are handled amongst gentlemen. Anthony tells Daphne he must duel. It's not just about her. It's also about her sisters, the entire family. This one kiss could ruin their whole family. Bit much, but... Benedict comes home from his interesting evening only to get pulled into another room by Anthony, who insists that they need to talk. 
while shutting the door to Daphne and yelling at her to go to bed, like she's a 12-year-old. Anthony tells Benedict he must stand as his second during the duel. It doesn't seem as if there's any good ending to this duel. Either Anthony kills Simon and has to flee the country, leaving Benedict as the head of the family, or Simon kills Anthony and Benedict becomes the head of the family. And heir then, and with this newfound freedom, it doesn't seem like Benedict is too keen on the idea. It seems as if this impending duel is weighing heavy on his mind, so Anthony decides to show up at Sienna's unannounced. Ugh. He bangs like a madman on her door and she answers, telling him he's really strayed too far from his home this time. He tells her that if he wins the duel, that the two of them can finally be together, free from the constraints of society. But like, super broke, I would imagine, so that can't be good, right? <laughs> Whether he really meant that they could be together or not, it at least worked for tonight. They hop on top of each other immediately. With the door open and everything. Yeah, they, I, I mean, this couple particularly does not care where it happens. I mean, if you think back at the very beginning of the show, he's kind of the first scene. and Wasn't they're it like, just a tree? With the servants standing nearby holding the horses. They just, they don't care. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. So I was wondering, I know I didn't put this in the notes or anything, but I was wondering if if he has to flee the country because he did, he, he murders Simon in the duel, that perhaps he would still be allowed to use funds if Benedict sent it to him? I th I think so, maybe. Um, I'm not sure. I know that uh, the the book uh, North and South deals with that. It's a little later on and, and later in the 1800s deals with something similar like that. That's another period drama I really want to show you. But um, something happens with the brother where he has to kind of permanently live abroad. And as far as I know, maybe the family can send him stuff, but I... I can't remember if if that's something that yeah, fair enough. you know, was allowed. But what I do find infuriating about Anthony's storyline compared to Daphne's is the fact that he can go to Sienna's like anytime he pleases. They can do what they want with the door open. Uh there are way less consequences for his actions with Sienna than there are for Daphne. We do have accounts in the Georgian era where it's known that gentlemen have mistresses, sometimes even children with the mistresses, where they would keep the mistresses up in their own homes and take care of them financially. And this was just seen as something that men could do. Um, even sometimes the, the wives would, would know about it and would kind of be okay with it or, or it would be a bit open in society. So it's this kind of Regency version of boys will be boys, Whereas with Daphne, one kiss in a garden with a man that she's built up feelings for could ruin her entire life. And not only that, somehow it wasn't even her decision to kiss him in the first place. She was manipulated and led astray. She doesn't have her own autonomy in this situation based on what Anthony says. So he's allowed to have this mistress and still be fine to eventually marry, while Daphne has had one kiss and she needs to marry the Duke immediately or the entire family will go into ruin. It's insane and, like, no wonder she's going off it on Anthony. Like, no no wonder they're... I, I do wonder how much of that is modern interpretation of the situation yeah. compared to actual historical, you know... Uh, a, a reaction from someone in that time period. Yeah, I th I think that too. W I mean, we we do know that people had slip ups back then, 
but how a reaction how someone would have reacted to this exact situation I don't know because you're I feel like you're right your worldview would be a bit different so I, I don't know because historically people can be used to so many weird things that we would find abhorrent but they just kind of found a bit a bit off but normal well, well like we were saying in the last episode that girls were getting married at 15 and and that was kind of a normal thing and so you wouldn't necessarily i think maybe someone like eloise wouldn't necessarily be protesting you know not wanting to rush into marriage or whatever because if it's the norm that you're marrying at 15 no one's gonna go well this is a child bride you know I, so i don't know it's hard to say how people would react but i do feel like for it for our minds and and for this show daphne's got to feel like she's in the twilight zone a bit it makes no no sense it's unfair and it makes it seem like in these moments any sort of bonding that the two of them have done as siblings somehow it's not real like anthony doesn't know his own sister who she is and that she can make her own decisions that alone has got to hurt Daphne. Cause it's like, Hey, I'm, I'm the sister you've grown up with. You know me, you know, I'm sensible, you know, I'm smart, you know, I'm capable of handling my own mind. We've had talks about this and we've grown up together and you've treated me like we can have these equal conversations. And now all of a sudden I don't know what I'm doing and I can't control my own fate. Like that, that would drive me a little crazy in the brain. <laughs> so it's just maddening, and I think Daphne's reaction in this scene is 100% understandable. It's also weird when it's this thing of guys treating women differently. So, like, obviously, Anthony is going to treat his sister diff differently than he's going to treat Sienna. We'd hope so, of course. Um, but he sees them differently in the sense that Sienna can make her own decisions and decide to leave him or be with him. And he wouldn't say to himself that he's seducing Sienna or that he took advantage of her. He wouldn't think that of himself or of Sienna, who can drop him at any point. But he does see that when it comes to his sister and the Duke. It's not as if Daphne could have fallen in love with Simon on her own, just as e easily as he had fallen in love with Sienna, because his sister is chaste and virginal and pure. And it couldn't be possible that she's an object of desire, so she can't make decisions for herself. And even though surely him being her brother deep down, he should know that she can. So I just hate that kind of thing where guys treat women differently based on their relationship with them in terms of like equality. Obviously, you'll treat your mom and your sister different than you treat your partner. And that makes sense in terms of the dynamic of the relationship, but not in whether or not they should be able to make their own decisions. And that's just annoying. Yeah, I, I don't think they'd ever think of it in terms of making their own decisions. But like my thoughts here is that it's definitely it's a division of class. It's the upper class women the noble women they they kind of do this thing they're you know prim and proper and all that kind of stuff and they're up there um on the high road whereas sienna is she's lower class so yeah she can do what she wants because she's already at the bottom of the social pile no other person is going to look at sienna and go oh look at you you're doing something horrible because she's already doing something horrible because she's not a noble woman i will say i wonder if it was more of a worldview of like um, women felt privileged to not have to care about those things. Like, oh, I don't have to be worried about working or singing at the opera or going to these performances or or getting a man to to keep me and get me an apartment. I don't have to worry about those things 
And so I am in the better position because I can sit back and not have to make those decisions. So it's like this privileged thing rather than saying like, oh, well, I get to make less decisions about my life. It's it's more of a worldview of I have men to protect me and to make those decisions for me. So I am more for- fortunate, even though in reality, this other woman has more personal autonomy. Yeah, but the thing is, like we know from today's world, privilege is invisible to the people who have it. So mm-hmm. I doubt that anybody had th- those thoughts <laughs> just because they're so used to it and they, they probably didn't think of it in terms of, oh, I don't get to make personal decisions. A lot of them will never have ever experienced a situation where they didn't get to make a personal decision and some other woman did to see the difference. Mm. That's why, I mean, okay, it is this century um, where we kind of start to see the the movement for um, equality of voting, okay? And then obviously the early 1900s and things, it, it really ramps up. But around this time, yes, people are starting to see these differences, but I don't think we're quite there yet in this time period. Mm. So, I mean, I also kind of want to say... I. I kind of understand Anthony's position here because he's responsible for the whole family, whether Daphne and Violet like it or not. And so honestly, the reality of that at the time is that Daphne doing this thing where she's gone and kissed the Duke would just stain not only her, but the whole family. And I get his reaction because now he's, he's panicked because he's like, crap, I'm in charge. And the whole family is going to go down if if I don't do something about this. Like Daphne acting like a child. Why have you done this kind of thing? Yeah. So he's being an idiot in not talking to Daphne like she can make her own decisions. Like, you know, have have a proper conversation with someone. Don't just treat them like a child. But at the same time, I can totally understand the panic and the, the kind of the sudden thoughts. Well, of, it's kind of like, gosh, she put us in this situation now. How do I have to fix it? Right, exactly. Because it'll come down on my head basically yeah so i i feel like he should be berating her for being so selfish rather than treating her like a child yeah that makes sense because in that way it would it would make her have to take owner ownership for her actions exactly yeah but then again that that the way that it happens is the other side of the coin where if she doesn't make her own decisions because she's just a woman right in their view then how can she be at fault for the decisions that she makes it's so confusing. It would be so confusing. Yeah. So, I mean, she 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 jumped on the Duke in public. Like, that's silly. That's really silly. I mean, they jumped on each other. Let's be fair. No, no, because they, they, they broke apart and then she jumps on him and kisses him. I thought they did it around the same time. I mean, she kind of throws her arms around his neck and stuff. It doesn't really matter. Like, it doesn't matter if they both did they it. They both but did it. it. But it's... Okay, but it doesn't matter. She still made the decision because she was one of the pair. So, yeah, it's very, very silly. Hypocritical of Anthony as well. Like, yeah. But that's what that's what makes this conflict so interesting to watch. That's that's why it's it's part of it because we can kind of see both sides, and there's a bit of there's tension from all all these different sides, and they all kind of make their own. The only person that we don't really see the decision making process yet is simon no so we'll talk about that later yeah so i think it's the layering of all these different conflicts and that's kind of real true to life that makes for great telly yeah yeah so back to the recap over at the featheringtons lord featherington opens the door to his office only to find his wife sitting at his desk she tells him basically to show up and listen to what she's got to say 
because she is not messing around. She's no, found she ain't. <laughs> she's found him out. She's found out about his gambling and his debt. He spent all of their money, including their daughter's dowries. And she finds out that this is why he's rejected Philippa's suitor so quickly, because he doesn't have the money for a dowry. And it's also why they keep Marina in the house, because he owes her father money. She asks him, what are you going to do about it? But rather than fighting, he begins to weep. And it just confuses Lady Featherington. She was not prepared for this at all. And as he's crying, he's telling her, I don't know what to do. So I want to talk about what happens between Lord and Lady Featherington. I think you and I have a little bit different views on this, but I'm just going to start out. Well, let's see. Ugh. So this is just an annoying scene on Lord Featherington's part. This man has been dismissing his wife. He's been cold. He's been distant. And he's been annoyed by her. And it's turned out that it's really him who is the embarrassment of the family all along. I hate this kind of mani manipulation. And honestly, a character like this, it's he's just useless. He's obviously got a gambling problem, which should be addressed, totally. But at the same time, he's come off as such like a, a man's man who's who hasn't turned to his wife at all for solutions or an advice in this acting like he's so high and mighty like he he doesn't need a partner in in these sort of serious matters when re in reality he's like a child in terms of like what she's supposed to be doing as a wife and a mother she's doing her side of the deal right like she's been pushing her daughters to be out in society she's agreed for marina to come and live with them and be in charge of helping marina find a husband so in terms of what her role her job is at the time, she's holding up her side of the bargain. She's being the dutiful wife and attempting to find their daughters suitable husbands. So I feel like not only in the sense that her husband, her partner in life, has lied to her on a personal note, I feel like this has got to hurt also kind of like logistically between their roles because it's like I've been doing the thing, the only thing that I can do in this relationship, which is to make sure our daughters are out in society, that they get in the right circles, that they wear the right things and are ready to behave in society. And behind the scenes, you've not been doing what your role is to provide for them and make sure that the girls have dowries to get married. So on a personal and then a, like a professional, whatever that means between them, I would be so annoyed because it's like a lot of the way Lady Featherington is is because she knows that her daughters need to be married off, um, that sh she needs to have them presentable in society. And then he's been making a mockery of them by doing whatever he wants with their money and not providing for them whatsoever. He's gambled away their money. So the role he was supposed to play in providing for them, which is why they can't go out and get jobs, that's what he's for at the end of the day. That's his end of the deal, and then he ruins that. Like, what What would you do as a woman? And so I understand him breaking down and being overwhelmed and him not knowing what to do. But he's also caused this. And now when everything has turned haywire, not only does she have to do the woman's side of things by still finding her daughter's husbands, now she has to help him get out of his hole as well. It would just be a lot, I think. And it's and, and as annoying as she is, in a moment like this, you've got to give hats off for Lady Featherington. You can tell in this scene, this woman is stronger than her husband and will figure this thing out. She's nothing if not a fighter. And now, when it really matters, he has no idea what to do. Yeah, I mean, he's totally failed in his role and responsibility. And I get it. And I don't, I don't like that kind of a person who just 
is incapable of asking for help and that kind of a thing. Yeah. But this is, to me, super sad. Like, yeah. I'm not as frustrated by him as I'm kind of feeling sorry for this role that he's supposed to take that he's clearly not strong enough for. He also feels like he can't say so until this moment that he's found out. And, like, he's got all this embarrassment, guilt, worry, and fear just all balled up inside. He's probably not been able to talk about these things with literally anybody else in the world, something that men still do today. And that's just got to have been eating him up inside. It's got to have been awful. And then this moment when he walks into the office and he realizes he's been found out, he just breaks down. I totally like empathize with that, you know? I think in that way, it's interesting that they decide to to put it that way in the show because it could just be that he could deflect or he could have come in the office and demanded that she get out and lock the door. And so I do think that it's interesting that that's the way it ended up playing out. But it also kind of just shows that she, in this moment, is the stronger partner. Because she's she's like, well, you know, I'm going to have to figure this out. But I think... I think he has continually just been doing what he's been doing. And whilst being like nervous about everything and bottling it all up he just keeps doing it which doesn't make anything better it's just it made doesn't it worse make it, it doesn't make it any better but couple all of that kind of worry and guilt and everything up with the fact that he's got a marriage with someone who doesn't really like him you know seen in the way that she's incapable of giving him even the basic comfort here um, and i just feel sorry for him because it's like if they had a marriage that was a true partnership they wouldn't be in this mess. Like, maybe if they'd been, if they'd felt capable of talking to one another, if they didn't just ignore one another. Um, but you're right as well, though, that throughout the series so far, he's just seen as this, like, really um, solid guy that <laughs> doesn't really care about what's going on. But the reason that he's acting like that is because he knows that if he gets involved in all that business, then maybe... People start prying into his business and, and he the mask want that. comes off. And the mask comes yeah. away. I, I do think this is, along with the girls not being as pretty and them not having as much money and standing in society, I think this is another thing that like contrasts the Bridgertons, right? Like we don't see Violet's marriage to her husband because he's dead, but we have this sense that that there was a true partnership between Violet yeah. and her husband and and that her children have seen this example at one point in their lives. And so that's why it is such a big thing for, for Daphne to have a love, love match and for that to be a part of this story. Whereas over at the Featheringtons, they have a dysfunctional marriage. We don't know whether or not this marriage was a marriage of convenience or... You know, I don't assume that they had a love match. We don't know. No, no, we do know. Like, they they very explicitly make the comparison between Violet and her husband, who I don't know if we know his name, um, and then the Featheringtons. Yeah. Like, it's very clearly two sides of the coin of love match and just a match of Well, I also think it's another reason why um, Lady Featherington, she has such an easy time with pushing Marina into these, like, dysfunctional... Uh, courtships that are the the age differences are so wrong and she's fine with like marina um manipulating a man and stuff because she's she's probably like well i've had to get by with 
being with a man I I don't love and you do it for security and you do it for your kids. So like, what's wrong with her doing it? But not only that though, like it was probably 80% of people got married yeah. because they kind of had to rather than because they loved the person. Yeah. Sad, sad, sad all around. Okay, so it's the next morning, the morning of the duel. Everybody involved is on edge. Daphne's pacing in her room and eventually leaves to go downstairs and confront Colin, the youngest brother, demanding that he tell her where the duel is to take place. Colin is of the opinion that either the Duke will marry Daphne, the quote is, remember his honour, or they will both shoot wide. But it should be the men that settles these matters. Daphne does not agree. She remembers that Cresta Cowper has seen her and the Duke in the garden, and she's got to stop this duel. Anthony, preparing for the duel in a big field, starts by paying the doctor, uh, who is refereeing the duel, a a big bag of coin. Benedict asks the doctor, if the goal is merely to wound, where should my brother aim? And the doctor scoffs, saying, do you think that you have the skill to guide the path of a moving bullet? Then you are either a fool or the king's finest marksman. Which is it? Obviously neither, from the look on their faces. (laughs) Anthony tells Benedict that he must care for Sienna afterwards, and he also passes on their father's pocket watch. Simon shows up with his second will, and it seems that he could be ready to die. My affairs are in order, is all that he says. Daphne and Colin dramatically ride towards the field where the duel is taking place, um, with a a big massive cloak on Daphne, which is a very interesting choice, I think. (laughs) Both seconds, both men acting as seconds, rather, inspect the pistols as Simon and Anthony face off. Simon says, for what it's worth, I am sorry. Anthony doesn't care, and he says that the apology is worth nothing to him. Brutal. The two stand back to back with their pistols, calling ready. They take their paces, turn, and aim. Simon is holding his pistol directly into the air, and Anthony is aiming towards the Duke. But as he aims, his hand begins to shake. Daphne charges into the middle of the dueling ground, shouting stop, just as Anthony fires. She's riding a white horse, which rears when the shot goes off, and throws Daphne to the ground. The two men rush towards her as she's covered in her cloak, and we cannot tell if she's moving. But, to everybody's relief, she does move, and Simon asks, Are you well? Tell me. I am perfectly well. No thanks to you idiots. (laughs) What the hell do you think you're playing at? Anthony says. Says the man who just shot at me. You just rode into the middle of a duel, he says. I think this is perfect uh, sibling dialogue here. She tells them that she requires a moment with the Duke, and Benedict tells them to make it brief. Simon says, you should not have come, my mind is not changed. To which she just replies, it must. So, get on board. (laughs) She tells him that the two of them were seen. Scandalous. She says he must marry her, or she'll be ruined, and yet again he says that he cannot. Daphne doesn't understand why he would do this. Does he really hold her in such low regard? And he says, it is because I hold you in such high regard that I cannot marry you. I can't. He finally reveals why he won't marry her. He cannot give her children. And those are his words. He cannot give her children. But it is her dream to have children. And he knows this. And he says that the prince can give you this. And etc, etc. So she needs to step aside and let things go ahead. So that she can get everything that she wants out of life. Daphne clearly doesn't care for this plan, and she tells him that there's no need for them to resume because the Duke is going to marry her. Gosh darn it, you're going to marry me, mister. 
the end. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. So I'm going to let you talk about the dual side of things. Um, but I want to talk about, like, Daphne's scene here. One of the things that I appreciated in this is that Daphne comes riding up on a white horse, which is normally what happens in these types of stories when a knight is saving a princess or it's some sort of, like, damsel in distress type situation. I think this was a really subtle kind of nod to the whole white horse saving thing, turning it on its head and essentially saying that Daphne has come in to save the situation because the men are being ridiculous and someone has to do it. Someone has to stop the silliness. So it was totally cliched. She, of course, came up just at the right moment at just the right part of the field. It's hard because a part of my brain finds that really satisfactory. And then another one is like, come on, this is, so cheesy when it happens in the 2005 version of pride and prejudice and darcy comes walking up at just the right morning and the early morning hours exactly when elizabeth is out and about walking herself it's like there is no way that they could have planned meeting at the same time these estates were massive during that time the chances of the two of them being um there together and walking outside at the same time in the morning like that is just so slim and so the rational part of my brain is like oh please but then the part of me that is romantic and that wishes these kinds of things happen in real life is super satisfied it's like yes they're there at the same time what's gonna happen so I just choose to lean into that right now and be relieved that Daphne gets there at just the right moment of course, as soon as she gets there, she falls off the horse and the men rush to her and try and help her out again. But thankfully, she gets up and she takes charge of the situation once again from the men, the silly boys. So the annoying part of this is that if she didn't want to marry Simon, then this scene would be really unfortunate. But in a weird way, and one that is completely stuck in this time period, Daphne is trying her best to take hold of her own fate by riding out to the duel. She's wanting to make sure that Simon marries her because otherwise it will ruin her. And let's be honest, she also loves him, so she does want to, to do it with him, obviously. I mean, marry him. I mean, I think she'll all... I mean, you Did know. you really reduce this down <laughs> to just doing it? No, I just meant that, like, she does want to do it, meaning marriage, with him, but I'm sure... She will also want to, anyways, on Simon's end, it is starting to feel a bit ridiculous that he just won't marry her. It would be different if he was like repulsed by her or even if he was just being a bit of a man ho, which he has been in the past apparently, but he's not. He's shown that other women aren't even tempting to him anymore. All he really cares about is her. It's clear that she's torn him up so much that he was, prepared to completely leave the country which seems like such an overreaction for someone who doesn't have feelings for her like for him to up and want to go that far away it's clear that he deeply loves her at this point he's got to get miles away to avoid her so it's just weird to me that before now he hasn't told her at least what's up with him even just to explain what's going on to the person that he loves but to be honest these two people's eyes move more than their mouths so i'm not surprised that they haven't mastered communication between one another because it's clear that that's not really what they're interested in right now 
but one aspect of this scene that I find hilarious is that there's this meme going around um, about when the Duke says, it's because I care for you that I can't marry you, where people are calling him an F-boy. Yet again, I was talking about that last episode, but I just want to say that's hilarious because it's so true. That's such a line that an F-boy would say. He definitely would be a Regency F-boy. Like, who says that to someone that they're really trying not to marry to me it's the equivalent of that thing that like f boys say where they're like it's not you it's me but i'm gonna be so jealous of the guy that you finally get with like why would you say that what what the heck does that even mean that could be you you could be that guy but you're leaving me so i hate that scummy kind of thing it's like mind games that these tinder guys do where they're like oh, you're so hot, it's going to be so hard for me to forget about you as they're, like, walking out the door. It's like, please, give me a break. Just say that you've got no intentions with me and stop wasting my time. I hate that sort of thing. You know I hate that sort of thing. But I'm so glad that you aren't one of those types to play games because it's just so obnoxious and it's super annoying and we wouldn't be together, but you're not, and I love you, so it's all good. Good. I can't imagine how confused Daphne must feel about a statement like that. Like, what? If if you cared about me that much, then just dang well marry me. Are you kidding? Sorry, I'm getting ranty. I'm fine. But no wonder Daphne is so adamant because she's like, dude, you need to grow up and just marry me, which nowadays wouldn't be so good. You can't just try and rope somebody into marrying you. But in those times when her security and her family's reputation are so at stake, I could see why she'd be so desperate. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, but, I mean, the whole duel itself is crazy when we think about it in today's context, yeah. right? Can you imagine having a duel with someone because you kiss their sister? <laughs> Wait, hang on a minute. That can happen. You so, know, like, if you, if you watch enough reality TV. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> we don't really duel to the death anymore, but, like, the modern continuation of this happens all the time when somebody, like, you know, gets a slap to the face or a punch or whatever because they're messing around with people they shouldn't be. So, like... It's it's kind of funny that we we don't do the dual thing anymore, but it is a case of, right, where is he? I'm going to find him. I'm going to drive over to his house. I'm going to punch him in the face. I mean, to be clear, we, we don't, like, have people that we know that do that sort of thing, but uh, it does still happen. I mean, I'm talking about TV and films and stuff. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's like, who do you know that's, like, going over to people's house and beating no. them up for kissing their sister but absolutely I, nobody but that kind of thing happened i mean people pretended it was going to happen in high school uh, sorry secondary school wow i can't believe i just said high school well it's my influence over you but i will say like one of the things that they don't really cover in this very like we we know that anthony and the duke are our friends and everything but that's another you were talking about like their worldview versus ours I don't necessarily know that that whole like, oh, it'd be weird to date my best friend's sister thing. I don't really know that that would have been a thing back then. Like you used to be able to marry your cousin back then and, and it would have been seen as fine. So I don't know that it would have been a big deal for someone to marry their best friend's sister I mean, in, that, in the Regency period. So I mean, that's not quite what I'm saying. Um, no, no, I know. I'm just saying that oh. that's another aspect of of this like like that's kind of woven through this, isn't it? That they're kind of like, oh, well, you know, he's, uh, or she's my, my best friend's sister. That would be weird. And they, they kind of like make these different references to that throughout the series. And I'm just saying 
probably more than likely in this time period that wouldn't have been a big deal at all i mean yeah i didn't see it like that i simply saw it as anthony knows simon because they've been friends so he knows what simon's done in the past rather than like you shouldn't be marrying my sister well i addressed this in in a recap for for next oh, next good. episode so that's something that cool it comes yeah. up again we can talk we can talk about it again because it, it is something that's kind of like said more more plainly in the next episodes so. oh fair enough okay yeah. so i mean obviously here we have something a, a little different than you know these fights and stuff that we mentioned because we've heard honor mentioned quite a few times already and obviously the name of the episode is an affair of honor but it, it was a super big deal for the nobility back in the day like whether it be for business or just because of a personal like code of honor most nobility wouldn't want that honor impugned so when we look at dueling we know that it kind of comes out of the chivalric code of the knights, the medieval knights, and it's mostly an English and French uh, courtly activity in, in in this kind of context, right? So although there are reports of seeing dueling back in uh, Greek and Egyptian iconog iconography, um, and we kind of do see examples across like lots of other cultures as well, we're specifically talking about this kind of English-French um, nobility-type duel so once engaged in a duel, they actually rarely ended in fatalities because the purpose wasn't to murder your opponent, but it was to guard your personal or family honour, like in this case. So this honour extended to participating in duels as well. If you were challenged to a duel and you didn't accept, this was as much of a blow to your honour as the original insult, and it's probably why historically men don't back down from like offers of fights, and, and until fairly recently... Thank God. I mean, I've never been one to enjoy actual fights. I mean, I hope not. <laughs> no, I mean... Yeah. Violence is never the answer. Okay, tell children that in the 90s in the north of England. We can tell which one of us is homeschooled and which one was not. <laughs> yeah. Anywho, so we can see Simon here kind of raising his pistol to fire in the air. And this comes from the concept that he cannot say no to the duel or prove himself dishonorable, but he cannot fail to fire as this is also dishonorable. So he doesn't want to kill his friend as well. This is dishonorable, not to mention illegal at the time. And let's be fair, it's, you know, Simon's fault that they're dueling anyway. So killing Anthony for demanding satisfaction probably wouldn't sit well with Simon. The dishonored party can stop a duel at any time. So in this case... Anthony would be able to stop the duel at any time. But often, first blood would end proceedings, or until the combatants were unable to hold their weapons due to their injuries, if the dishonoured still wished to proceed. This is kind of a little bit more relevant for when duels were um, still done with swords. Um, it's about to say that that doesn't make as much sense with with guns. No, I know, um, because the wound of a of a pistol is um, more likely to put you into shock and stuff anyway. But, I mean, basically, the idea is, if you were wounded, but you could still hold your weapon, you're allowed to carry on. Um, if the person who challenged you demanded it. So, basically, because it's all about honor, if you do something to insult someone... And they say, I demand satisfaction. You go to the dueling field or whatever, and you start poking each other with swords. Now, if the person who was um, insulted stabs you in the gut and goes, yeah, there you go. You deserve that. Then they walk away. You're fine. Right. But if they stab you in the gut, but then they're like, 
really wanted his kidney, <laughs> right? Then you're going to have to keep going until either you literally can't hold your weapon anymore or you're dead, mm. basically. Yeah. So we mentioned earlier about the seconds. So this is the person that the principals, the the duelists, bring along to um, the event to A, ensure that like nothing kind of untoward happens, but B, they're there actually to try and stop the duel as well so really yeah it's supposed to be that the second would ask if honor had been satisfied just by turning up to the duel so kind of like witnesses witnesses but yes they're also supposed to kind of discourage any further violence okay so right that makes so sense. say say they both aimed at each other they both fired and they both missed because they're smoothbore pistols quite easy to do right at 20 paces the seconds would then both step in and say has honor been satisfied and then they would either say yes and go okay we had a duel nobody died oh well but you're still a horrible person but you know i've i've defended my family's honor um or they'd say no and then they keep firing so it's kind of like the second is supposed to be that person that's not as close to the drama. And so they can like stand back and it's kind of like when two guys are fighting, they can be that person to pull the fight apart and be like, hey, hold me back, hey bro. Guys. Hold yeah, me yeah, back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, a hundred percent. The problem is seconds often got just as uppity as the principals and um, they, <laughs> they, they would often duel as well. <sighs> so, there were actually stringent rules for dueling. Um, there were quite there were four main um, codes that I've kind of come across, um, but the one that's kind of particularly relevant here is called the Cold du Duelo or Duello. I don't know, but it was written in seven. Well, okay, there's a bit of contention here, but it was supposedly written in 1777 um, by some Irish um, gentlemen. And this was seen as the accepted rules for dueling, uh, despite the illegality of the practice. And I want to highlight one rule in particular here, which is rule 13. No dumb shooting or firing in the, in the air is admissible in any case. Interesting. The challenger ought not to have challenged without receiving offence, and the challenged ought, if he gave offence, to have made an apology before he came on the ground. Therefore, children's play must be dishonorable on one side or the other and is accordingly prohibited. Okay. Basically, this is saying if you challenge someone to a duel, but then you can't be, you know, man enough to use that awkward, horrible phrase um, to actually shoot at him, then you shouldn't have challenged him. Or if you gave like an insult, you should have apologized before ever got to a duel and hopefully have avoided the duel if you were unable to actually shoot at someone for the insult that you gave. Yeah, because I suppose if you're going to show up and then just shoot into the air, you're wasting everybody's time and you're possibly injuring yourself. So it's dumb. Right. Yeah. 100%. So so what Simon is doing here is 100% against this code. Um, You have told me in the past, though, when I've mentioned this previously, that something similar happened to Hamilton. I think so. I think so. I, I think it would be really cool because you haven't seen Hamilton. I think it would be cool to have you watch that because that, that's an example of a real-life duel, right, between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Um, and, I don't know. Oh, gosh. So I think that would be interesting for you to watch because um, while it is a musical, it's, you know, 
the facts in it are historically correct. And so it would be interesting to see what a real life duel and the aftermath of that, what that was like and, and see, see your take on it. Yeah. So, I mean, the, obviously we have cases where this has happened, dumb firing or firing in the air, um, but it was against the code. Um, but what I also kind of want, I'll mention this in a second. What's also interesting in the, in the code duolo is that the final rule states that when seconds disagree and resolve to exchange shots themselves, they must do so at right angles to the principles and at the same time. So as far as I can tell, basically it means you've got to fire in a, in a different direction and at the same time, meaning that you can't have one duel going on with the seconds having pistols as well and they can't be like parallel to one another because if they were you'd be able to have two people aiming at one person and have more chance of killing them so if the, if they're at right angles and stuff it basically the whole point of these rules is to reduce fatalities well there's no point in turning a duel into a battlefield so yeah yeah exactly exactly so after all of this kind of discussion, I would also like to point out that in the research that I was doing, I found evidence that the Code Duolo may not have been published until 1827, not 1777 as originally indicated, and it may have been written as a tongue-in-cheek creation. Interesting. Mm. So I'm not the person to fully do this research, but it is out there. Um, if you're interested at all, please have a Google of Diane L. Durante's blog. Um which is about dueling codes relating to Hamilton, actually. Okay, cool. Yeah. So maybe we can put that in the show notes or something. Yeah. So anyway, the duel is supposed to restore the honor of Anthony's family name, because if someone found out that Simon and Daphne had kissed and like totally groped each other, then their <laughs> honor is besmirched. But even further, would, would it be besmirched if people knew that Anthony knew and did nothing about it? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it doesn't make sense, but it makes sense in, in terms of this time period of why he then felt he had to act. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So, yeah, I mean, I think the the interesting thing is that, as we mentioned, I think at the end of last episode, this is a turning point in the series mm -hmm. where on episode four, it's it's kind of a point where we go, oh, you know, this is really serious. Things are... Um, really taking a turn like when when you first watch it you don't really think that it's ever going to get here do you no so um it's an interesting thing it's it's a very clear midpoint yeah we we can tell that everything is going to change after this episode yes so and it's really cool because we kind of we see that in such a, a final way but also i just i do want to point out that the cloak thing that daphne was wearing um it was very lord of the rings i kind of i I thought it was fun. I've always loved cloaks like that. I wore one at our wedding. Had a... You did. And it was like a cape cloak. But yeah, it had a hood and everything. I forgot about that. Yeah. I loved that. But it, it, it's all white and fluffy and I can never wear it again. Do you but still have it here? I do. Well, no, I have it in the States. Okay. Yeah. So, but I'd love more. We should get some capes. That would be fun. Where would we wear them? I have no idea. Hang on idea. a minute. Hang on a minute. A few episodes ago... You said that I was ridiculous for saying that the, the time period that I would dress as would be kind of more medieval and therefore is basically a big cloth poncho thing. And you said that that would be silly. And now you've just said that we should have cloaks, which cloaks is basically the same thing. Cloaks are different than those things. I don't know what they're called, 
I wish I knew more medieval hi- me- medieval history. So I'm I'm working on that though. My PhD, I have to I have to deal a little bit in medieval history, and I'm I'm learning slowly. But really, yeah, that far the, back. That part, yeah, no, the the so for our listeners, I'm also creating a podcast for my actual PhD, um, and maybe when that comes out, I can I can share my my PhD podcast with you all if anyone is interested. I have no idea, but um, no, my my podcast goes through. Uh, several different um time periods within (laughs) i love that i don't know my own research um the different episodes of my podcast for my phd go through goes through different time periods of a particular estate in wales and the first episode is early history and so it it covers kind of the early history of this estate and which are the years um like 1200s Onward, 1200s to 1500s. Um, so the the okay. early history of the the estate and and the Welsh gentry family that lived there for, you know, hundreds of years. And so I've I've had to kind of learn about this this family and the different ways there was there was different things going on with the laws for mm-hmm. English people versus Welsh people. And so I've kind of had to learn about that and I've had to learn about like Welsh praise poetry and just some different like medieval stuff I've never heard of. But my basic knowledge of kind of medieval history is kind of what I can think of through pictures, uh, paintings and stuff. And so the costuming to me just does it's not as appealing to me as like Regency costumes or um, Victorian costumes where you've got like all these different like beautiful layers and details on the dresses and so i i'm just i'm making a bit of shade and that's all i don't really mean anything by it i mean that's because you've either got peasants or you've got the nobility and at a certain point in you know medieval history the nobility basically looked like peasants but just cleaner like fashion wasn't a thing and we mentioned this in previous episodes right um so so yeah i'm sure there's got to be people there's got to be um fashion historians that would disagree with us and say that like like clothing back then that there was beautiful detail and stuff so i I don't want i don't want us to say any like anything official because i watch some some fashion history youtubers and they'll they'll come for us so i don't don't want to say that but i i think like in terms of me and my very limited knowledge of like medieval fashion it just doesn't catch my eye the same and so i just kind of make fun of it where i'm like you just want to put a sack over you and put I a think belt on this is one of those other things as well because we, we we mentioned medieval a little bit and like a very basic um definition of that is from the year 500 to about 1500 um which is obviously <laughs> a very long time yeah, that's a long time it's longer so, than i was thinking right well i mean i think if if we were actually doing um, research into this period of time, that's why you'd call it the Middle Ages. Mm. You call it the early Middle Ages, the the late Middle Ages, and stuff like this. So, um, yeah, it's it can be broken down a little bit further. I don't know how we got on this subject, but it, it was fun. It was a fun ride. Uh, dueling. Dueling, yes. But anyway, we've finished about that now. Yes, that that's the end of this episode, uh, which is episode four the the last half of episode four um and so next week we'll be doing episode five we're more than halfway through i'm kind of sad yeah but we've got lots of other things we could talk about and expand on so i'm quite excited about that as well yeah i i am too 
So thanks to everyone who's been listening. We've been really enjoying this together and enjoying seeing the podcast grow every day. This is our first podcast, so it's been really awesome to see how many people have been downloading our episodes and following us. It really means a lot to us. Um, obviously, this is this first season is going to end soon, so it'll be a while before we're able to recap season two. So we've been in talks about like what we could do to recap another Regency show or maybe another period drama. People would be interested, let let us know. Uh, a certain other Regency show sounds like it is in talks to have a second season, which is nothing short of a miracle, but I don't want to get too excited about it. Um, the Sisterhood, you guys know who you are. Um, if you'd be interested in recapping that show, let us know on Facebook, in our Facebook group. I don't want to jinx that, so I'm not going to talk about it more until we hear things are official. But for now, I'll just say we're contemplating possibly recapping that show and and maybe seeing where our podcast goes from here so we'd love some feedback from our listeners in what you'd be interested in us covering so do shout us out in the facebook group facebook slash groups slash regency rumors or email us at a regency girl at gmail.com i'd like to end this episode once again by shaming my husband oh good for his dumb C shanties. They're not dumb. I don't know when this started. <laughs> you did. It was last week. Well, that's when the horror started. That's when my life changed forever. He showed me like one or two videos. Basically, we it, I think it was like a Friday night. And we were laying there and you're like, oh, we can watch something together. Which a lot of times we end up doing our own thing because we're in lockdown. And so we're together all the time. But he was like, oh, we can watch something together. So I'm thinking he's going to like turn on a movie I've been wanting to see. I've been really wanting to watch Breakfast at Tiffany's together. So I'm thinking he's going to turn on a movie I really want to watch. He starts turning on like five or six of these sea shanties. <laughs> these like, and, and it's like the same song with like different people singing the same song over and over again. It's called a chorus. Oh my gosh. It's the same song. Or, or, or song and I response or whatever you want to song. call it almost probably by heart now without even asking to listen to it. And it's so catchy that you can't not. So it's just in your brain constantly. So I've had a week of the same song in my brain over and over again. And then he sings it. He plays it. It just, it never ends. And I support you and I support your interests, but I'm, I'm over it. It's, I don't care if you're over it because they're not dumb. Like it's a whole cultural thing for sailors across centuries. These shanties that have been, they just, they, they're passed by word of mouth for like all of these sailors across, across the world, basically. Right. And they're, they're actually really cool because they were all supposed to be like songs for being in sync. I mean, it, it makes sense. I'm sure if you think about it, but you know, when you're singing the songs, you know exactly when to haul on the rope. Um, so there's two types. Well, <laughs> there's probably loads, but there's... Oh, I opened Pandora's box. You have. But but hauling and heaving. Mm. Um, hauling is pulling and heaving is pushing, if I, if I remember. So you haul on a rope and you pull it in. But if you heave something, you're heaving it overboard kind of thing. Anyway, so yeah, I mean, the, the songs are all about... The, that's why they've got a very um, rhythmic structure and it's very easy to remember them because the whole point is that the whole crew are supposed to sing the chorus. 
and then you'll have one singer doing the verses and stuff and you know they've always got like funny songs or not sorry not funny songs f- funny stories or morals or all those kinds of things and i just i really like that kind of songwriting and storytelling anyway in any any music and folk music is just it's good for that so no i think i think all all jokes aside i think that it's nice that there's all these different traditions that's been like kind of popping up through lockdown that I think if the world was just normal, maybe we wouldn't have them the same. Cause like over lockdown, there's been cottage core. Um, what is it? Cottage core, vintage core, something else, traditional crafts. And now there's Regency core. And do you know what cottage core is? I imagine that it is a, an aesthetic movement where it's all about cottages of like the 40s 50s type time period i think it's maybe a little bit earlier than that it's it's a lot of people wearing like little house on the prairie type clothing and making pies and and like cottage core yeah it's like this aesthetic as far as i know i haven't really gotten into it but it's like this aesthetic where people are um kind of wanting to make things simpler so like simple dresses simple patterns um some people are wanting to have like small gardens and cooking with with fresh ingredients and um reading by candlelight so like it's it is like an an aesthetic um and now apparently there's regency core which i haven't really looked into it but it's where you know you wear regency inspired clothing Um, but I do feel like that lockdown has kind of brought back these traditional things that maybe in normal times we wouldn't have the time for. I certainly, I've gotten a lot of like fabric recently that I'm wanting to make some Regency things with. And I don't know that I would ever have attempted that in normal time because I would just, I would either be too busy or I'd be like, oh, I I can't do this. Like, why would I do this sort of thing? So I think, I think as horrible and as tough a time as COVID has been for so many people, I think, you know, if we're going to try and look at some kind of light in this dark time, that I think this is one of those things where great things have come out of it, where people are going back and learning traditional crafts or they're or they're singing songs that are 200 years old that no one has listened to for a really long time or that... yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that's really cool. I mean, even I think, though it's driving me insane. Yeah, but the the, the funny thing <laughs> about the sea shanties is that Assassin's Creed Four Black Flag really primed me and and you know hundreds of thousands of other people to be ready for the twenty twenty one, the year of the sea shanty. Well, I wasn't ready. Thank you very much. I mean, they're catchy on purpose, and and they're just amazing. And I'm debating on whether I should have it as our outro music. Please. There Dear once Lord. was a ship that put to Please. sea. And the name of the ship was the Billy of Tea. The winds blew hard, her bow dipped down. Blow me, bully boys, blow. This was a ship that put to sea. The name of the ship was a Billy of Tea. The winds blew up, her bow dipped down. Blow my bully boys, blow. Soon may the Willowman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tonguing is done, we'll take her leave and go. She had not been two weeks from shore When down on her a right whale bore The captain called all hands and swore He'd take that whale in tow 
Soon may the wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tonguing is done, we'll take our leave and go. Before the boat had hit the water, the whale's tail came up and caught her. And to the side, harpooned and fought her when she dived down low. Soon may the wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. Thank you, dear listener, for tuning into this episode of Regency Rumors. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.